Hello, it's Jamie here, and welcome back to Bloody Bites. Well, everyone needs a hobby, I suppose. But today's subject is drone, or rather drone 2, as I did do a previous Bloody Bite on drone. So it's drone 2. The genie is uncorked. Miracle and method of the modern unmanned air vehicle. I say modern, but in fact, what I want to do is go back to the 1940s because it's the V1 that was the precursor to everything you see today. Often I walk down a road called Turk's Row off Lower Sloane Street in London's Chelsea, and there is a memorial plaque. I can't see it, of course, because I'm blind, but I know it's there. And I do pause to reflect and pay my respects because that was the site where in July 1944, 74 American servicemen and three civilians were killed by a V-1 flying bomb, the doodlebug, the buzz bomb. It was, of course, one of Hitler's revenge weapons, the first in the series of two, the second being the V-2, the uh, ballistic missile. And both, in their way, were revolutionary. The V-1 was, as I said, a a cruise missile, a standoff weapon, uh, the precursor to today's drones. And although they were psychological in their impact, they didn't have a huge effect militarily. It was too late in the war. But 6,700 were fired at Britain, first one landing in Kent in June, I think it was June the 13th, 1944. Two and a half thousand hit London. Five and a half thousand people were killed, 16,000 wounded. So the impact in terms of military effect was small, but people were scared of it. It had that droning sound. People talk of the sound of the Shahed 136 Iranian drone that Russia is unleashing on Ukraine these days. So you can see the sort of similarities. There were, of course, countermeasures. Every weapon has its countermeasure, its foil, just as you see it today in Ukraine. And for the V1, there were many ways the Allies could hit back. First of all, there was Operation Hydra, the August 1943, the RAF bombing raid that hit Pinamunda, the rocket test facility in the Baltics. And that scattered the program and put it back by many months. The the V2 rocket testing moved to Poland uh, and the production moved to Nordhausen in the Harz Mountains in those tunnels there. The V1 production went to northern Italy. So things were sort of dispersed. So firstly, the countermeasure was direct attack. Then you got MI6 and the French resistance getting measurements of the launch ramps for the V1. They were were launched off a ramp and a rail um, across the channel. It only had a range of about 150 miles, so it had to be near the coast. So the Royal Air Force built uh, ramps to those specifications in Britain to allow the training of crews, of flight crews, to spot and destroy. And over 100 of those ramps were destroyed. So that's direct impact. There was also the, the... 
sneaky beaky side of things there was also the spying the subterfuge because of course through the double cross agent system britain managed to feed back to germany that the v1 was overshooting london so the germans tweaked the range of the device of the buzz bomb and the doodlebug the v1 fell short of london so there were many ways of attacking undermining that program there was also the fact that RAF fighters would shoot down the V-1 as it was flying along. The Spitfire could catch up and overhaul it, dive on it. Um, quite often, it was easier to tip the wing, put the Spitfire's wing under the V-1 and tip it, flip it, so that it crashed. I mean, frankly, if you're firing at close range at a flying bomb that has a 1,800-pound warhead, it's probably better just to roll it over. And, of course, a lot of those uh, doodlebugs were taken down by anti-aircraft fire from the ground. You leap forward to today and you look at Ukraine, and again you see the sort of similar uh, methods being used to take down the Shahed 136 and other Russian drones. You see the effectiveness of Ukrainian anti-aircraft fire surface-to-air missiles like the RST uh, or the NASAMs and other weapons, even man-portable devices, in bringing down those drones. Uh, jamming systems have been provided. Sanctions are taking their effect. Uh, apparently, the Israelis even bombed a factory in Syria that uh, apparently makes components for the Shahed drones, for the Iranian drones. And, of course, the, the companies have been identified whose dual-use technology has been inserted into those drones today, whether it's for the motors from China or circuit boards from the US or Japan. So there are other ways of undermining that technology. So the weapon, the birth of the weapon system and the countermeasures, this is an ongoing situation and you can trace it back to the V1, the, the start of it all. And in the last podcast on drones, I, I talked about the evolution of drones from the Ryan Fireby in the 1950s in the United States uh, being used as a target drone to fine-tune America's surface-to-air missile and air-to-air -air missile development. Then you got the Firefly during the Vietnam War. And the realization that drones could take on the reconnaissance role over high-intensity war fighting zones, theatres of war, that it was better not to lose a pilot or an aircraft. Why not send a drone? So that evolution has been ongoing from that time. And so you get to today. And the obvious advantage of the drone is that it's cheap, both in absolute and relative terms. If you look at the drone strikes that Russia has made against Ukraine's civilian infrastructure, you can see that for the launch and loss of 300 drones, over 200 have been shot down. If each one is $50,000 and 300 is still less than the entire cost of a Kamov Car 52 Russian alligator attack helicopter. So it's damn cheap. And so the Russians have that option. They can't send their aircraft over 
because they don't have the precision munitions and they're vulnerable to the patchwork surface-to-air missile defences of Ukraine. So why not send drones? And, and you can see that happening across the front. For the Ukrainians, too, cheapness is all. Uh, they've used commercially available drones, cargo drones, quadcopter drones, uh, extremely well across the front as anti-tank devices, anti-howitzer devices. The UK has sent uh, Malloy Aeronautics cargo drones. And these drones are getting increasingly sophisticated. You take something like the BAE Systems T650 that they've developed with Malloy Aeronautics, it can carry 650 pounds of kit in its payload base um, over 30 kilometers. So you, you get this ability of the drone to resupply forces forward to drop munitions. The T-650, for example, would be able to carry a Stingray torpedo off the deck of a frigate. Uh, so the deployability of these drones is becoming increasingly useful and welcome in the military sphere. You also get, as I said in the last podcast on drones, the fact that it's politically cheap. You, you don't have the expense, the political expense of losing pilots, of having them used as human shields, uh, having them killed, of losing the aircraft. They, they can take on a multiplicity of tasks. And there's no longer that risk of having a Gary Powers incident when the U-2 spy plane is shot down. And again, drones are moving in heavily into that sphere. In the next year or two, you're going to see the, the son of Blackbird, the SR-72 fly, yet again, a, a high-altitude reconnaissance drone. So all these theatres of war, the drone is moving in and colonising that area. I want to move on to the concept of hybrid warfare because it's the use of the drone, not just in conventional warfare, but in in pressing pressure points in strategic aspects of warfare that are going to grow in the future. And again, Ukraine is a crucible. Ukraine is a sort of testing ground for so much of what is going to come in the future. You've seen the Shahed 136, the Iranian drone being flown by the Russians, hundreds of them against civilian infrastructure targets. So for very low cost, the Russians are making a strategic impact and a strategic statement. So for very low cost, the Russians have been able to take out, neutralize over a third of Ukraine's electricity generating capacity. So that has been really the, 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 the point of the Russian campaign. They, they're not winning on the battlefield. They can't win on the battlefield. They're on the defensive across the entire front. But lo and behold, the drone gives them a chance to push back, to, to hit in a hybrid way, in an asymmetric way, uh, the weaknesses of Ukraine. And that is obviously the, the civilian population where the Russians think they can pressurize the government, pressurize the world, pressurize the civilian population, just as they're using other asymmetric tools like grain or gas or deportations uh, to pressurize the world, to try and shape world opinion and global political opinion. For the 
Ukrainians, they too have engaged in this hybrid warfare. People are now talking about the raid in late October on the Sevastopol uh, Russian Black Sea Fleet uh, with using unmanned surface vehicles, USVs, and unmanned air vehicles as the, the new Battle of Taranto when aircraft carriers were used for the first time in war by the Royal Navy when they attacked uh, the Italian fleet at anchor in Taranto. And again, this is probably right. This shows the power, the force of the drone, how it can be used and how it will be used in the future. It's extraordinarily imaginative what the Ukrainians did. And the Russians have been hurt by it, make no mistake. The fact that they're blaming Britain for it, the fact that they're not putting out any uh, damage uh, assessment, uh, they're not publicizing it, shows that they have been severely wounded by it. And the Ukrainians have done it with smaller forces, but with technical imagination. And the drone has led that. And that, again, is a sign of the future of what is going to come. So you've had cheapness, you've had hybrid warfare. I think there are many other things that the drone provides that, in a way, aircraft, manned aircraft, can't and don't. For example, there's the ability to swarm. And if you have a swarming drone fleet, if you have dozens of these drones in the air at any one time, it's so much easier to confuse enemy air defences. It's so much easier to have individual taskings for those drones. And in the last drone podcast, I was talking about the worker bee of the battlefield, and that is exactly what is going to happen. You're going to have drones individually tasked in the future, and hundreds of them swarming over the battlefield, confusing enemy air defences. And the effect of infantry on the ground or armour on the ground will be massive. This is a game-changer for the future. You also have loiter capacity, and it's the loitering that you've seen with uh, anti-armor weapons, for example, that again has changed the battlefield, the nature of the battlefield, because it gives commanders flexibility. They can have a drone loitering. They can bring it down when they're retreating to cover a retreat or to cover an advance, to act as decoys, to deceive the enemy. There's so many things that loiter munitions and loiter drones can do. There's also the aspect of persistence, that a drone can stay on station for much longer than aircraft. I mean, already you're getting drones that can stay on station for a day or two. Uh, you've got solar-powered uh, drones such as the Zephyr that can stay in the air for weeks relaying communications or providing ground cover, providing surveillance. And that, again, is extremely important for the modern battlefield. It means that the enemy can't maneuver, it can't escape, it can't do anything without being noticed. So you've got the cheapness, you've got the hybrid nature, you've got the loitering, you've got the persistence. So it is very difficult to see how the battlefield is not going to be marked, is not going to be changed by this technology in the future. You also have the concept of teaming, and this is another 
technological development that is happening as we speak. You know, you look at the UK's uh, Tempest program to provide a sixth generation fighter. You look at the experiments and tests that are going on in the United States at the moment. All these new technologies, all these new platforms, whether they're manned or unmanned, are designed to be teamed with other drones, that they can fly in flotillas and squadrons of larger formations against the enemy. So you get a manned aircraft with wingmen either side, and that manned aircraft, that pilot, can send those drones off on other operations. You've already got drones that are carrying sub-drones, sub-munitions. So you've got mini-drones within the system as well. So the whole battlefield is going to have an array of different systems uh, operating across the spectrum. So you've got teaming. You also have the arrival of artificial intelligence and edge processing, onboard processing. I've already talked about the drones being used in Libya, the Turkish drones that had facial recognition on them. And that is just a sign of things to come. You're going to have drones that individually will be able to decide, prioritize, target human faces, that will be able to recognize targets, identify them, home in on them. So a lot of that will be taken out of the hands of the battlefield commander, will be taken out of the sort of process and be pushed to one side, be pushed on board the drone itself. So the drones will dominate the airspace and the battlefield. You simply send them off to do their duty and they will do it. And again, you do it without any risk to your own side, without any blowback, without losses either to your troops or to your airmen. So that's artificial intelligence, and that is certainly something to look at. And it's no coincidence that even the next generation of U.S. Army infantry fighting vehicle is called the optionally manned fighting vehicle. You know, everything now has the option of being unmanned, and that, again, is going to be the future. So what are the rules of the drone into the future? There are so many. At present, it obviously covers the I-Star realm, the intelligence gathering, the surveillance, the target acquisition, and the reconnaissance. But as we go forward, it will also include every dimension of decoys, of direct attack, of loitering. And you know, if you look at something like the Boeing uh, MQ-25A Stingray, here you have a drone uh, that's going to be deployed by the US Navy in the air refueling role. So a drone that can refuel aircraft in flight is also going to be a drone that ultimately is going to be a strategic bomber that could well end up accompanying the new um, radar, the B-21 radar bomber, the manned bomber of the U.S. Air Force into the future. So these are all the areas that the drone is going to develop into, is going to colonize in the future. I think I'm going to end uh, this section on drones, on really going back to World War II. I talked about the V-1 at the beginning and how it was the precursor of what we see today. But 
it's worth pointing out what the drone will replace. I talked about the risk to servicemen and women, uh, you know, on manned aircraft, and that the drone immediately gets rid of that. So it's worth talking about uh, an action that took place in September, September the 15th, 1940, right at the height of the Battle of Britain. And a young chap called John Hanna, who was 18 years old, a flight sergeant, a radio operator on a Hamden bomber known as the Flying Suitcase. It was so cramped inside. He was on a bombing raid because the Battle of Britain wasn't just about bringing down Goering's Luftwaffe. It was about taking out the invasion capability of the Nazis uh, when they came up with their idea of Operation Sea Line. So bomber raids were sent against the massing invasion barges, for example. And this chap, John Hanno, who was 18, went on this raid with Hamden bombers to attack the invasion barges in Antwerp that were massing in Antwerp. And his bomber was hit. Two of the crew jumped out because the bomber was in flames. The pilot maintained his flight control, managed to fly the plane, even though it was in flames, and stayed in the cockpit. And Hannah decided to stay behind as well and fight the fire. So he used two fire extinguishers. He eventually, as the flames were lapping around him, used the logbook of the aircraft to beat out the flames. And they kept on rising up again. He kept on beating them down again. And he managed to keep the flames suppressed until the Hamden bomber reached the base back in England. And by the time the bomber landed... It looked like a Meccano set. The, the outer aluminium panels had been completely burnt away. Hannah, by this stage, couldn't jump even if he had wanted to because the cords of his parachute were burnt, and he was burnt. It was the most extraordinary display of courage, and he was the youngest recipient of the Victoria Cross during the whole of World War II. And it's worth mentioning those kind of sacrifices because that, hopefully, is what the drone will allow us to avoid in the future. Hannah, by the way, died seven years later, age 25, from tuberculosis. But his heroism and courage is quite extraordinary and worth mentioning here. So I, I thought that would be worth mentioning in a podcast on drones. And so that brings us to the postscript. And today's postscript Again, I want to talk about the future and, and the sort of applications that drones might have. We see the development, the rapid development of what is called uh, advanced air mobility or air taxis. We see companies such as Vertical Aerospace in Bristol in the UK producing its aerial taxi that can carry four individuals. And that will be piloted, at least for the moment. Then you get companies such as Supernel Hyundai, branch of Hyundai, the car maker, who are going pell-mell for unmanned airborne taxis uh, and developing those in the future. And it's worth reflecting that these manned or unmanned vehicles today might be carrying passengers, but tomorrow they might well be carrying commanders uh, across the battlefield and also commandos. So the airborne taxi, the airborne flight of drones will develop not just from decoys and t target attack and everything else, but to carrying personnel. It won't just be dropping grenades 
down the open hatch of a tank. That's the future. That's all for today's Bloody Bites. See you next time. So it goes. My name is Tom Ashton. His name is James Jackson. Please subscribe, it's free, to our podcast on the app you use and to our mailing list via our website. This is very important as it boosts our rankings in the podcast charts. Thank you and good luck. Good luck.